bear with me when I read a short story to you. It's a couple pages long. It'll take just about five minutes. But uh, this is from Jennifer Rosenberg. It's called The War is Over, Please Come Out. In 1944, Lieutenant Hiro Anada was sent by the Japanese Army to the remote Philippine island of Labang. His mission was to conduct guerrilla warfare during World War II. Unfortunately, he was never officially told the war had ended. So for 29 years, Onada continued to live in the jungle, ready for when his country would again need his services and information. Eating coconuts and bananas and deftly evading searching parties he believed were enemy scouts, Onada hid in the jungle until he finally emerged from the dark recesses of the island on March 19, 1972. Onada was 20 years old when he was called up to join the army. On December 17, 1944, he left for the Philippines to join the Suji Brigade. He was ordered to lead the Labang garrison in guerrilla warfare. As Onada and his, command, his comrades were getting ready to leave on their separate missions, they stopped by to report to the division commander. This was what he ordered. You are absolutely forbidden to die by your own hand. It may take three years, it may take five, but whatever happens, we'll come back for you. Until then, so long as you have one soldier, you are to continue to lead him. You may have to live on coconuts. If that's the case, live on coconuts. Under no circumstance are you to give up your life voluntarily. Onada took these words more literally and seriously than the division commander could ever have meant them. Onada and his three-man team lived very close together with limited supplies the clothes they were wearing, a small amount of rice, each had a gun with limited ammunition. Rationing the rice was difficult, it caused fights, but they supplemented it with coconuts and bananas. Every once in a while they were able to kill a civilian's cow for food. The cells, these separate groups like his, would save their energy and use guerrilla tactics to fight in skirmishes. Other cells were captured or killed while Onadas continued to fight from the interior of the island. Onada first saw a leaflet that claimed the war was over in October 45. When another cell had killed a cow, they found a leaflet left behind by the islanders which read, The war ended on August 15th, come down from the mountains. They decided the leaflet must be a clever ruse by the Allied propagandists. Again, the outside world tried to contact the survivors living on the island by dropping leaflets out of a Boeing B-17 near the end of 1945. Again, they believed this must be an Allied hoax. Leaflet after leaflet was dropped, newspapers were left, photographs and letters from relatives were dropped, friends and relatives spoke over loudspeakers. There was always something suspicious, so they never believed that the war had really ended. Year after year, the four men huddled together in the rain, searched for food, and sometimes attacked villagers. They fired on the villagers because we considered people dressed as islanders to be enemy troops in disguise or enemy spies. Isolated from the rest of the world, everyone appeared to be the enemy. On October 1972, at the age of 51, after 27 years of hiding, Kozaku, who was one of the three men that had been with him, and the last, was killed during a clash with a Filipino patrol. Though Onada had been officially declared dead in 1959, Kozaku's body proved the likelihood that Onada was still living. Search parties were sent out to find Onada, but none succeeded. Onada was now on his own. Remembering the division commander's orders, he could not kill himself, yet he no longer had a single soldier to command. 
1974, a college dropout named Norio Suzuki decided to travel to the Philippines, Malaysia, Singapore, Burma, Nepal, and perhaps a few other countries on his way. He told his friends that he was going to search for Lieutenant Onada, a panda bear, and the abominable snowman. <laughs> They're all in the same class. Where so many others had failed, Suzuki succeeded. He found Lieutenant Onada and tried to convince him that the war was over. Onada explained that he would only surrender if his commander ordered him to do so. Suzuki traveled back to Japan, found Onada's former commander, Major Taniguchi. On March 9, 1974, Suzuki and Taniguchi met Onada at a pre-appointed place, and Major Taniguchi read the orders that stated all combat activity was to be ceased. Onada was shocked and at first disbelieving. It took some time for the news to sink in. We really lost the war? How could they have been so sloppy? Suddenly everything went black. A storm raged inside me. I felt like a fool for having been so tense and cautious on the way here. Worse than that, what had I been doing for all these years? Gradually the storm subsided and for the first time I really understood my 30 years as a guerrilla fighter for the Japanese army were abruptly finished. This was the end. I pulled back the bolt on my rifle and unloaded the bullets. I eased off the pack that I'd always carried with me and laid the gun on top of it. Would I really not have use for this rifle that I'd polished and cared for like a baby all those years? Had the war really ended 30 years ago? If what was happening was true, wouldn't it have been better if I'd died with my comrades? Tragically also, during the 30 years that Onada had remained hidden on Labang Island, he and his men had killed at least 30 Filipinos and had wounded approximately 100 others. Philippine President Ferdinand Marcos pardoned Onada for his crimes while in hiding. I read this kind of lengthy story just to make the point. Here's a guy whose whole life was in a sense ruined and lost because he didn't know what was true. The war really was over, but he didn't know it. And because of that, just think, you know, he says it all went black. Can you imagine if someone told you that you'd been in prison unnecessarily for 30 years? You'd, he went in at 20. He comes out when he's 50. And just put that in perspective. I don't know how old you are, but if you could take 30-year chunk out of your life, what would that look like? So he looks back and suddenly he realizes because he didn't understand that the war was over, think of all the things he lost in life, all the things he could have done. The real losses, 30 other people were killed by he and his men. A hundred others wounded. He himself, thinking back, all his youth was over. I don't know what his health was like at this point. But all that life was wasted. All those energies, all the disappointment, the hardship, all of it was unnecessary because he didn't know what was true. The war was over and he didn't know it. And the reason I bring this up as an opening illustration is I'm convinced, maybe on a less uh, dramatic level, that for many Christians, we suffer the same kind of misunderstanding that Lieutenant Onada did, which is that we don't understand the way things really are in life. And out of this misunderstanding, we spin our wheels, we work at life in an unnecessarily laborious or stressful manner, because we don't understand what is already true. We don't get it that the war is over and that it's safe to come out and play, as it were. Specifically, what I want to talk about this morning as far as clearing up our own misunderstandings is, is something that we've actually alluded to in the previous teachings in this series. We are in week six of the God Is series. We'll only have next week to complete that. This week is God is pleasable. God is 
pleasable. That's what we'll be talking about this morning. You know, in the larger world in which we live, there are common misconceptions about God. And unfortunately, many of us bring those misconceptions in either from before our conversion or we still embrace them today. And so like the lieutenant, if we're operating on false information, it affects the way we live. It affects everything we do. It, it causes real losses for us in ways we don't want to, to experience if we can avoid them. And this area in the, uh, related to being able to please God, I'm just convinced, uh, having seen this in my own life and certainly in discussing many other Christians, many, if not most Christians, live a life that's motivated out of fear. And because our deepest needs are to be known and loved, we labor to bring our lives up to some acceptable level so that God can approve of us. And this is false information. And that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. God is pleasable. And not only that, but if you're a Christian, you already stand in God's favor and in God's blessing. You already please God. We don't want to suffer the same fate, Lieutenant Anata, living a life on false information. Let me paraphrase, and also I'm going to read through Ephesians 1 and 2, not the whole chapters, but very briefly. This is my edited version. If you're a Christian, what Paul writes to the Ephesians is true of you. If you've placed your trust in Jesus Christ, what Paul says in these verses is no less true of you than it was in the first century to the church at Ephesus. Absolutely the same. This is where you and I start with God as Christians. This isn't a plateau we work up to. This is our baseline starting point with God in relationship with Him through Christ. To the saints who are at Lion and Lamb in Christ Jesus, God's favor to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. He chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world, so that we would be holy and blameless before Him. He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He already freely bestowed on us in the Beloved, in Christ. In Christ we have forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. Not a little bit, but a lot. He made us, past tense, alive together with Christ. He raised us up with Christ. He seated us with Christ in heavenly places, so that in the ages to come He might show the surpassing riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ. If you're a Christian, when God looks at you, He looks at you, as it were, in the place of Christ. You're in Christ. So God loves you today, no matter what else you do. If you've trusted Christ, you're in Christ. God loves you no more and no less than He loves Jesus. And He approves you no more, but no less than Christ is approved. In God's eyes, this is kind of a difficult concept for us to get a hold of, but in Hebrews, when it's showing that Jesus is a better priest than Levi, it says that Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek because Levi came from Abraham. And Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek. Levi's his descendant, therefore Levi paid tithes. 
the children are seen through the Father. Does that make sense? When God looks at us, we are in Christ no less than Levi physically was in Abraham. We're in Christ. So when God thinks of you and I, it's as those in Christ. So he already thinks, so to speak, this is reality. You and I are as good as in heaven right now with Jesus next to God the Father. So his disposition to us is as accepted as Christ is, you are. As pleased with Christ as the Father is, that's how pleased He starts with you. All the love God has for Jesus Christ is the same love He has for you. And that's true because you're in Christ. It's true of every one of us uniquely. Who we are in Christ. We don't lose our identity in Christ. Don't don't misunderstand this. We become fully what we were always intended to be by regaining our identity in Christ. You know, all of us bear the image of God, but it's marred, it's defaced because of sin. When you and I trust Christ, we get this new birth. It's not a loss of something we were. It's gaining fully what we were always intended to be. So you are no less loved, no less accepted, no less delighted in by God the Father than He loves, accepts, is delighted in His Son Jesus already. That's your starting point in life. This isn't a mountain you work your way up to. It's where you start. At the moment of your conversion, all this is yours. You know, if I have a child born into my family, that child's my heir. They get everything I have. They get all the blessings I have to give. Unfortunately, in this life, they get the downside of my life too. That's true for us in Christ. All that He gets, we get because we're in Him. We're His heirs. We're His his brothers, and you know, we've been through all this in the previous teachings. We're in Christ, that's what we get. If you, like the thief on the cross, if you died the moment after your conversion, if you didn't do one good work on earth for Christ, you're converted, you trust Christ, you die, you'd be no less loved, no less accepted, no less delighted in than Jesus is. Because it's Christ's value to God, that's what we inherit when we trust Him. That's our absolute starting point. That's the minimum. If you're a Christian, that's God's disposition towards you. You're accepted, you're loved. He lavishes His love on you, all in Christ. That's where we start at. It's not what we work towards. In a sense, God has ended the war. He's written the peace treaty in His Son's blood, and He's put out the notice that you're at peace. You don't have to work this up. You can lay your guns down. There's no enmity between God and us anymore. There's no no heights for you to scale, no enemy for you to capture. You're at peace with God. You're good to go. You're good to live life. You see Jesus as a man, when you look at the incarnation, He starts, if you think of it this way, He leaves heaven already as a member of the Trinity, loved by the Father, blessed by the Father, delighted in by the Father. He comes to the earth in the incarnation. He's already loved, accepted, blessed, etc. Then as a man on earth, he does the things, in fact, he says, I only do those things that please the Father. And out of that mindset, you see the Father saying, I'm pleased in my Son. Now, he started pleased with him. But then as he lives his life, the Father says repeatedly on at least two occasions, he says, I'm pleased with my Son because of what he's doing out of a desire to please me. So, for instance, Matthew 3, 17, if you remember the baptism of Jesus, 
He's lived about 30 years. He goes down to the River Jordan to see his cousin John to be baptized. Now remember, John was baptizing people, calling them to repentance, change your heart so you'll be ready when God's kingdom comes in. Jesus has no sin. So his baptism has nothing to do with repentance. But remember that the incarnation is about Jesus going to the cross to bear the penalty for our sin. So in baptism, he identifies with the fallen race he's going to go to the, to the cross to die for. He identifies with us. He takes his place among us as one of us because he's going to end up being our substitute on the cross three years later. When he does this, when he starts his public ministry by identifying with folks just like us, he comes up out of the water, a voice out of the heavens said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Jesus started with God's pleasure. And as he pursues God's will for his life, God says, I'm pleased. You're doing the things that please me. Later on in Matthew 17, 5, if you remember the transfiguration, Jesus takes three guys up on the mountain with him. He's transformed before them into his heavenly glory, and Moses and Elijah come and join them. The guys are impressed with Moses and Elijah, which isn't the point. It says, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. And if you remember the story, Moses and Elijah there are talking to Jesus about his impending death. And the context of this is, Jesus has set his face to go to Jerusalem to be offered up as the substitute, as the sacrifice. He set his face to Jerusalem to go do what God sent him to earth to do in the first place, which was to die on the cross for your sins and mine. So at the beginning of his ministry, he identifies with us, starts a public ministry. God says, you're doing exactly what I want. I am well pleased. When he sets his face to Jerusalem to die on the cross, God says, I'm well pleased. And finally, in John 19, 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine on the cross during his crucifixion, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, it is finished means, as far as Jesus is concerned, he's done everything God the Father wants him to do. This includes dying for the sins of the world. This is not a bad day's work, not a bad life's work, we could say. But think of this out of a, out of a different frame of reference. He didn't cure cancer. He didn't start an international company. He didn't leave Palestine. He didn't conquer the world. I mean, really, he didn't do that much, you know, from a bigger perspective. He didn't do all that much. But, at the end of his life, he knew he'd accomplished everything God his Father wanted him to do. So he could say, it's all finished, knowing he was fully pleasing God his Father. Everything God wanted him to do was done. See, this gives me hope. You know, many times we look at our own life and we think, I'm not that important. I didn't grow up to be the kind of person I thought I'd be. I don't have the, the uh, sphere of influence I wanted to. I'm not as wealthy, as good-looking, as fit, as popular. I mean, go on and on. School, work, whatever. Whatever that looks like. And we can tend to beat ourselves down because we look at our lives and think we're not, we're not all that great. We're not all that hot. But Jesus' life looked at from a similar perspective. You could say the same thing. But he knew in his death and in his life, in his ministry in public years, he knew he'd accomplished everything God the Father wanted for him. So he could say, it's finished. I know I've done everything I was sent here to do. That should give hope to you and I. It, it doesn't matter in the end. 
if your sphere of influence is less than you thought it'd be, or more and you don't like the weight of it, that the sphere you occupy in life is frankly set by God. We'll talk about that another day. Maybe next week when we talk about God is in control. But Jesus had accomplished everything God the Father wanted, and God said, this is my son, I'm well pleased. I'm well pleased. This brings up the question, what pleases God? Now remember, as Christians, we start loved by God, accepted, under God's pleasure, as it were. In this life, like Jesus, we start out acceptable, loved, known, lavished over, praised, accepted, etc. Just like Jesus. And also, just like Jesus, we have the opportunity to please God additionally, if we can say it like that, maybe add interest to the pleasure God already has in us, by the way we live our life. And this is what it comes down to. It's one phrase, both two key elements, obedience motivated by love. This is what pleases God, obedience motivated by love. I'm not going to develop this uh, all that long. Um, you feel free to look in your own Bibles. If you do, especially in the New Testament, you'll see time after time after time that Jesus says, if you love me, obey me. If you love me, obey me. If you love me, obey me. It's the bottom line. If you love me, obey me. However, obedience sometimes is outward conformance to a standard, not a motivation or an inward attitude of pleasing God. And, and there's a big, big difference here. If you think of the world Jesus goes to in Jerusalem, it's a religious world. And it's run by men who know what the Bible says, God's commands, and they keep them, at least in outward compliance. But these religious hypocrites are blasted most severely by Jesus more than any other group you'll see. In other words, they could say, look, I obey God. And Jesus says, you're dead. You're full of corruption. It's not just obedience. It's obedience motivated by love. It's both. They're hand in hand. That's what pleases God. Obedience motivated by love. If you're not obeying, don't tell God you love Him. If you're keeping all the rules but not out of love, don't tell God you love Him. It's obedience motivated by love. That's what pleases God. And frankly, this is utterly attainable for every one of us. This is not, again, it's not a difficult platform to, to crawl up on. Uh, Jesus says His burden is light. You know, to walk with Him is not a difficult thing to do in this world. If you look in your New Testaments, and we're not this morning, you'll see that, that Jesus has all kinds of commands. He tells us to do all kinds of things, and He tells us not to do all kinds of things. And we're not looking at a hit list this morning, but let me just read a few things that God says very specifically, these please me. When you do these things, these please me. There's all, all kinds of other ones, but these are phrases in which verses, God says specifically, your obedience in this area pleases me. In Hebrews 13, 16, it says, don't neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is well pleased. When you do good to others and when you share what you have with others, it pleases God. It, this is in all kinds of ways. This is babysitting. It's giving to the church. It's the church giving to the mission. It's doing all kinds of doing good and sharing with others. What you have, basically you're pouring out an element of your life on someone else. God says this pleases Him. Doing good to others and sharing, that's just like God. 
who does good to the evil and the just, who causes the sun to shine on the evil and the just. He's good, and he does good. And when we're like that, it says, we please God. Paul says in Philippians 4.18, he was on the receiving end of someone else's giving. The Philippians had sent him money to support him in prison. And he said, I'm amply supplied. I've received from Epaphroditus what you've sent. It's a fragrant aroma, an acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God. Paul, who knew God's heart, said, what you guys have done pleases God. You've done good and you've shared with someone else in their need. Paul says that pleases God. This is one that we always told our kids about when they were younger. Colossians 3.20 says, Children, be obedient to your parents in all things. Why? This is well-pleasing to the Lord. Children obeying parents pleases God because children obeying parents is children obeying the authority God's put over them. Take this a little further when we obey the authorities over us at work in church, in government, whatever, whoever God's put over us. When we obey those in authority over us, it pleases God. And this is clearly said here about children obeying their parents. That pleases God. It shows, remember Satan's sin was he usurped authority he didn't have. He wanted to come out from the place, the sphere God had given him. Children are supposed to be subject to their parents. Jesus was subject, Luke says, to his parents. God the Son was subject to these little folks from Galilee. These nobodies, so to speak, from the corner of the world. Jesus submitted himself to them because he was under their authority as a son born on the earth. When we obey those in authority over us, that pleases God. Proverbs 8.35 says, He who finds me, that is wisdom, finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. When you make it your purpose in this life to live life with wisdom, and in Proverbs this means you live life successfully. You have the knowledge and the skill to live life in a way that displays ultimate success, your relationship with Christ, appropriate responses to those around you. When you desire wisdom and you pursue wisdom, God is pleased. This pleases God. And remember, He's ultimately the source of all wisdom. When we pursue wisdom, God is pleased. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. God is pleased in marriage. Marriage is God's idea. Whether it's a wife or a husband, marriage pleases God. When you and I find a spouse, someone we commit to for the rest of our life and seek to honor God by loving that other person, raising families, etc., God said this pleases Him. This is out of His will. This is His idea. Marriage pleases God. Totally different stripe, but out of 1 Peter 2, 19 and 20, and I suppose these just give you some sense of a few of the things God says. When you do these things, they please me. It's true generically of all the things He tells us to do. 1 Peter 2, 19 is the different side of this. Peter there says, This finds favor. This pleases God. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. What credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it patiently you endure it, this finds favor with God. Think of this too. Jesus is the silent sheep before his accusers. Jesus stands publicly slandered, lied about, accused, defamed. 
and he raises not a single word in his own defense. And it says, if you read this passage, he entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. You know, if someone accuses you of something and you're innocent, or maybe even if you're not so innocent, what's your first response normally? It's, isn't it to verbally rise up and defend yourself? That's your first response. It's to verbally rise up and defend yourself. Jesus didn't do that. And I'm convinced if you knew, if I knew, if we laid hold of and actually knew that we're fully accepted by God, and if we're accused for something we didn't do, that in the end God will make it right, whatever that looks like, might not happen on this earth. If we knew that was okay, you know, I think we'd be a little less needful. We wouldn't feel that response that we've got to defend ourselves. Generally, it's insecurity that is this response. I've got to defend myself because I'm insecure. If I know God accepts me, is pleased with me, loves me right where I am, you know, I feel a little bit more free, freedom to say, well, okay, or, or whatever, or not to respond. I'm not saying don't respond if it's needful. There are times in which you need to clarify things. I'm not suggesting that. But there's not this sense of, I've got to stand up and make them understand I'm okay. If you know you're okay with God, you're accepted and beloved, I think we'd feel a little less needful to stand up and defend ourselves. And this is what Peter says, this pleases God. This is just like Christ. And if you'll notice, of course, in all these things, when you do these things, you reflect the nature of God. You can't do anything that pleases God more than reflect His own goodness or love or holiness or perfection back to Him. That's the best thing you can do. Besides God being pleasable, uh, God overflows in praise and reward to us when we do the least things that He is able to commend. That is, it's not just that God kind of smiles to Himself when you do something that pleases Him. In Jesus' life, He spoke from heaven to say, I'm pleased. Now, you may not hear God speak from a cloud in this earth. I would be surprised if it didn't happen. But, God stores these things up because He is determined to praise you before the hosts of heaven, all of mankind, all of the redeemed, and to publicly, in this innumerable host, heap rewards on you for the ways you've pleased Him in this life. This is a little mind-boggling. God's pleasure in us doesn't just mean a smile, and it doesn't even mean just an attaboy or good girl. It means that effusively, in eternity, He is going to praise you and reward you for the things we should be doing anyway. If you read the letters to the seven churches in the second and third chapter of Revelation, Jesus, in each one of these letters, addresses a different local church, just like ours. Each time, He introduces Himself in a manner that's specifically appropriate for that group. And then, six out of seven times, in each occasion in which He's able to, he praises them. He praises one church he can't praise. <laughs> There's nothing praiseworthy. That's a problem, which he talks to them about. But in every other occurrence, he praises them for the things that he can. Before he talks about anything else, you're not doing this or I need you to do this, any correction, any admonition, anything else comes only after he has praised them for the things that are praiseworthy. When you read about the return of Christ, Revelation 22:12 is just one verse, but Jesus says there, I'm coming quickly and my reward is with me to render to every man according to what he has done. You'll see Old and New Testament, the theme of reward 
with the return of Christ to the earth. Jesus says when he comes back and takes up his rule on the earth, when Jesus rules as the king, one of the first things he does, besides dispensing justice by putting down his enemies, it's to reward those who have served him. You'd see this today if you see a coup, the new leader immediately rewards those who helped him to power. When Jesus returns, he rewards those who have served him in this life. In little ways and big ways, he says time and again, my reward is with me. So when you and I do things to please God, you do get well done. You do get an attaboy, but you get more than that. You get his lavish praise in the courts of heaven and rewards. We don't know what all those will look like. Crowns are mentioned in the scriptures. Some people think reward will have something to do with your ability to know and enjoy God. That is that lives that were conformed more to his image on earth will bear some greater ability as it were to enjoy him in heaven. Hard to say. We don't know. Whatever it is, it'll be good. But he's effusive in his praise and lavish in his rewards for the things we've done to please him. So in this life as a Christian, you start out accepted, loved, delighted in by God the Father because you're in Christ. And then just like Christ, we have the opportunity to please God through the things we do. Let me wind down with uh, briefly out of Matthew 25. Remember the story Jesus tells just before his crucifixion. He says the kingdom of God is like this. A house owner goes on a journey and before he does, he calls his slaves to him and three slaves. He gives each of them a sum of money and says, uh, take care of this and I'll come back later. And in Matthew 25, 19, after a long time, the master of the slaves came and settled accounts. He went over the books with them. The one who'd received five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I'll put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now remember, uh, the slave belongs to the household. He doesn't work for the money the master gives him. The master gives him. He starts out with this sum of money. And all he does is maybe he puts it out at interest. Maybe he starts a business. He doesn't work up the funds. He just takes what he's given and he invests it. And when his master comes back, he says, well done. Enter into the joy of your master. Basically, come up here and let me uh, bless, praise, and reward you. We're not slaves. In the story, it's slaves. We're sons and daughters. But the thought is the same. Jesus is in heaven on a long journey. And he's given us. He's given us the time and the talents and the energies. He's given you and I the, the places in life we occupy the people we rub shoulders with, the opportunities you have are unique to you. And he doesn't say, work something up. He just says, in the unique place in life he's given you, do the things that please him. Because he wants to say, well done, enter into a fuller joy. Let me bless, praise, and reward you. I'm just absolutely convinced most of us live shallow, deficient lives because we don't get this concept. Because we're laboring to gain acceptance with God, you can't gain any more than you have. And if you understand that, then it frees you from this fearful motive of trying to get acceptance, and it leaves you free to obey out of love. Entirely different basis for living your life. Not fear, 
but love. Changes the way you look at life, changes the way you respond to life. Entirely different. I think something like Ecclesiastes 9-7 are the frames that we need to put on to think about living life more successfully. Listen to what Solomon says there, pretty wise guy. He says, eat your bread in happiness, drink your wine with a cheerful heart, for God has already approved your works. You're good to go. You're good to go. We start with life approved. God just says, follow me, do the things I give you to do, out of fellowship with me. And not only am I additionally pleased with you, but I, I get, God says, the opportunity to praise and reward you as well. That's what we need in our own lives. It would be nice, too, if we turned around and we gave that kind of acceptance to others as far as we're able to. You know, there's, there's uh, parameters on this. But as far as we're able to, we should accept others for Christ's sake and do good and benefit others for Christ's sake. And also, where it's possible, I don't mean in any contrived way, where it's possible, we should speak words of praise to others. This is especially true for parents. As parents, you stand in God's place and you're training your children how to interact with God. If your child thinks they've got to earn your approval, they're getting it all wrong and they're being set up to live a life based on Lieutenant Onada's lifestyle. I've got to work for something that already exists. You can't get any more of it. When your children obey, when they do those things you know they should, you should praise them. You should let them know in genuine ways that pleases you and praise them for it. And we should do that with each other. And I don't, again, not contrived. For the right reasons at the right times. And in the end, think of this. God, the creator of the universe, the omniscient, eternal one, all-powerful, every place at all times, in control, you can give God, you, every one of us individually, can give God, no one else in the world can give him, which is we can give him pleasure from following him and obeying him out of love in the unique sphere in life he's given us that no one else can. You can please God. You can give God pleasure in the life he's given you to live that no one else in history can. That's pretty big stuff. And then in the future, when you see God, Christ face to face, you give him, as it were, the opportunity to do what he wants to do, which is to say, well done, enter into joy. Different foundation for living. Let's pray. Lord, thanks that the redemption you provided for us in your Son is absolutely full and total. It's all-encompassing. As those in Christ, Father, we are loved. We are accepted. You take delight and pleasure in us right now as those who are your children. Father, I pray the truth of this would transform our living. I pray that it would be out of a motive of honoring you through obedience motivated by love that would be the norm for our lives. Father, it's mind-blowing to think that we can give you something that you don't have, but to give you pleasure through lives lived to your honor is something that we can do. Help us to see life through that lens. In Jesus' name, amen.